Vestal, New York, April 13, 1986. Address to Christians by Brother Bruce Conrad. I'd like to turn first to a passage in uh, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. one and verse 25 whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill or fill up the word of God even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. The reason I read that passage to start with uh, this afternoon was uh, the phrase at the end of verse 28. The Apostle Paul in his labor and in a conscious sense of his stewardship uh, committed to this, uh, this mystery, <coughs> he looked upon every man as not just someone who, yes, might be saved and brought into the church of God, might have their sins forgiven, but that he might warn every man, teach every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Last of the time we were together in this series of meetings, we took up the subject of service or ministry, more particularly, and the exercise of gift and how the Lord Jesus, having ascended up on high, gave gifts unto men. And the purpose of those gifts was not just that they could be exercised as an end in themselves, but as we read there in Ephesians, so that you and I, all of us, might have the benefit of helps, divine helps, divinely given and divinely empowered helps, that each one of us might grow up unto him, as we read there in Ephesians chapter 4. And so, if a brother comes through and he preaches or he teaches, our coming together to experience or to hear that teaching is not an end of itse in itself, but it's a function that, is, that uh, the Lord has ordered to take place uh, amongst his own. And the end result is that there would be more glory brought back to him. As that teaching or that exhortation or that comfort or that encouragement or whatever it would be is experienced and taken into the lives of his people, and there's more display of what Christ is down here. We need to keep in mind the Christ's object, God's object, in the, in the exercise of ministry in the church. And here, just to, to kind of continue for a few moments with that line of things, the Apostle Paul was very mindful of this. If I were an evangelist and I, and my, minister, my, my sphere of service to the Lord would more properly be out, uh, where the, out where the sinners are, I shouldn't rest just by saying, oh, that was wonderful, or one or two got saved tonight, or three or four, or however many. But the evangelist who, who, whose major work, that's his thrust out there in the regions beyond, he should look upon each of those uh, souls as they sit there and they listen, they ponder uh, these uh, solemn words. He should say, ah, oh, in his own mind, that not only does he want to see that person get saved, but he wants to see them come into a knowledge of the truth. Wants to see them presented perfect, as it says here, presented every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And so the evangelizing is, you might say, the, the initial work. 
And he's brought into the, uh, if things are happy and normal, he's brought in where others have already been brought in. <coughs> brought into the assembly. And there are those who, uh, who are, according to their measure, the sisters, the brothers, the old and the young, each one performing his function, would seek to encourage and to instruct and to pastor and to help. And the new convert would be brought on and brought up. And day by day, week by week, there would be brought in the life of that convert more and more of a conformance to Christ. Evangelizing is not an end in itself. Teaching is not an end in itself. And we ought to look at what God's purpose is in this. I can remember years ago as a little boy, growing up in a, down in a, a city some, some way south of here, before the days when everyone had air conditioning, difficult to sleep on hot, humid nights, and uh, uh, don't any of the little ones follow this, but I, I had this habit of climbing out the window up onto the roof uh, when I couldn't sleep. And I just look around the, uh, it was like a uh, housing development, little brick bungalows. And you could see all these other little houses, you know, just like the one I was sitting on top of on a flat portion of the roof. And I can remember like it were yesterday, I don't know how old I was. I can remember like it were yesterday, pondering that question, why am I here? Uh, looking out across the, you know, the suburbs as they were being built up outside of that city, just pondering, why am I here? That never left me. And by the grace of God, uh, he followed me and he brought me in. And it was perhaps uh, 15, 16 years later when I finally started to have an idea as to what God had in purpose for my existence. We read in uh, Revelation chapter 4, another passage before we get going on another line of things here. Last verse in Revelation chapter 4, <coughs> verse 11, <coughs> Revelation 4, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. I think it was back in the book of Job, which was centuries and centuries ago when, uh, when one of the speakers says, Wherefore hast thou brought me forth from the womb? And so as a believer now, we can ask the same questions that a convicted sinner might ask, only we can have light. We can have light and we can enter in uh, through the purposes of God as told out in the scriptures, just what is God's desire from me? Why did he bring me forth from the womb? Well, it's for his pleasure. And so we, we, I want to take up this afternoon with the Lord's help a line of things which we might just generally call priesthood, the Christian priesthood. And, and we might just see there as we, as if the Lord helps us and we get through a few of the different aspects of what it means to be a priest now in this present age, we might just see that there are things which are our most uh, exalted privilege and the most uh, important thing in our lives is, is a certain aspect of things included in that. And I wanted to make a, a careful mention last time we were together and took up the subject of ministry, I wanted to make careful mention that we all remember that ministry and service and the exercise of gifts as we each of us have gifts from the ascended Christ, those things are secondary to what we're going to have before us today. You know, sometimes when you, when you speak about the subject of Christian ministry or gift and people come away with a wrong thought, they come away feeling that, well, you're narrowing things up for me. You're taking away a liberty from me that I thought I had. I thought we could all do this and that. I thought we could all take part in meeting. And I, now I feel like I'm put in some sort of a constraint that I didn't know I had. Well, it's just the opposite. There is a ministry given to each one of us, a stewardship, a work for each one of us, personally responsible to the Lord. And in ministry, as, as we sought to, uh, to say last time, and in ministry, each one of us is unique and different. Each one of us has been placed differently in the body as it has pleased him. 
We possess different abilities, and we're given gift, different gifts, and we function differently in the body of Christ. But in priesthood, there is that which is characteristic of all of us, and that's the higher thing. We said last time how Levitical <coughs> services were always uh, ranged below uh, the priests. The Levites were given to the priests, and we we're all priests. Let's, let's turn now to 1 Peter 2. Familiar passages... <coughs> Just to uh, a place to start from, so we understand what what we mean when we say that each of us that knows the Lord Jesus is his or her Savior, that we are priests. First Peter two, verse five: Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then further on in verse nine. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It was God's purpose to have a people brought out from bondage, brought out from, from Pharaoh's dominion, as it was in the days of the book of Exodus there. We read in the chapter 5, uh, I'll turn back there a moment, Hold your finger in First Peter 2, if you would. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Exodus 5. Not that they may go serve me, but that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And there were many questions raised. Further on in Exodus, I think it's the 19th chapter. Verse 4, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. <clears throat> Verse 6, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which, which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. It didn't happen then for other purposes. Not all of those redeemed Israelites became priests. The nation itself, in a way, didn't become a nation of priests. But... <clears throat> Just like uh, we might quote in John 2, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. In this present age, all of the redeemed, every boy and every girl, no matter how young, how recently saved, how old, male or female, we, are, we have all been made priests unto God. In the Old Testament, a person couldn't become a priest by volunteering. You couldn't go to a school when you got to be uh, out of high school or 16 or 17 and say, I'd like to become a priest. You couldn't do that. You had to be born into a certain family. You had to be right in the lineage of Aaron to be a priest. You had to be one by birth. No one could volunteer. And so it is uh, similarly in the priesthood today. You can't just volunteer and say, I want to be a priest. Maybe you know as you get older you'll see people that you go to school with and you're going to say, well, are you going to go to college or go right to work when you go to uh, school? And some will say, well, I'm going to go into the ministry. I'm going to go be a priest. Well, it doesn't work that way really, does it? Because just as you had to be born into Aaron's family to be a priest in the Old Testament, you have to be born into God's family to be a priest now. And if you've accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and as you read his word, you will see that he has made you a priest. He has given you all those priestly privileges of access into his presence, and that you can worship him and understand divine things and have all those other privileges and responsibilities that a priest is known to have. And so here in 1 Peter 2, we see, first of all, in verse 5, in holy priesthood, a spiritual house. 
to offer up a spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And we might say, I suppose, at the very start, that the, the most predominant, I, I feel that in my own soul, that the most predominant privilege or activity of a priest is worship. It's the offering up of spiritual sacrifices. Now, I feel a little bit, you know, how do you put it? small standing here and starting to talk about a subject like this. I feel like a little child standing at the bottom of the Empire State Building or something and looking up at something so vast and so eternal and so intimate and sacred as this. So I trust my comments won't be esteemed to be presumptuous or anything like that. We realize we're talking about something extremely precious to God and personal, intimate, and all the rest. And I don't want to feel as if, anyone to feel as if you can put numbers to it or give a formula or anything like that. But I think we should we should at least start by understanding that what God is looking for from <coughs> us is our worship. Remember our late brother Albert Hayhoe saying, I was going to say many, but at least several times, as he would stand there, a devoted servant as he was, and say, the Lord can do without my service, but he doesn't want to do without my affections. He can do without my service and my work because he can do his work himself. He doesn't need you or me to go and lead someone to Christ. He can do that himself. But he doesn't want to do without our affections. He wants us to be worshipers. And in John 4, when the woman at the well of Sychar met there, that uh, heavenly stranger, met the Lord Jesus himself, little did she know who she was speaking to. But he said to her in that passage, Woman, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Let me read the next verse after that, John 4. <clears throat> Further on in that same passage, For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And so in a certain sense we would say that it's God's, God's purpose in this present age not just to call out people to, to forgive their sins, not just to make us servants or even members of the body of Christ, as wonderful as, as those things are, but to make us worship, worshipers, to put us into a place and to, to give us, even now, the enjoyment and the delight and the intelligence of something that's eternal. The Father seeks worshipers. You know, in Luke 17, where the ten lepers were healed, and uh, as they went, they were told to show themselves to the priest, and they went on. <clears throat> and uh, one of them, when he realized that he was cleansed, he turned back. And he, <clears throat> it says there, he glorified God. He gave thanks. He turned back to the Lord Jesus to give him thanks, and it says there that he glorified God. And the Lord Jesus there said, were there not ten lepers, where are the nine? Now, in a, in, in a, in a parallel-type passage, also in uh, over in John's Gospel, where where he says, "Lift up your eyes," and so on, and look in connection with service. He says that the laborers are few, but you don't seem to get—at least I don't get—the impression that there's eight, that there's seven, that there's seventy-five, or any specific number that are missing, and that that's the reason why there are so few laborers or servants. But here it's a specific number: each one, each one. Where are the nine? Not where is the majority, where are the other four, where are most of you, but where are the nine? We are dealing with something that is essential. Something that's essential to the heart of God, that we were created for his pleasure to be worshippers. 
So here in 1 Peter 2, a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Now again, what is worship? Do we? There's a sign out there on the on the outside of the building, uh, <coughs> listing some of the times of the meetings. Do we put up a, a sign saying Lord's Day, 11 a.m. worship meeting? Well, you don't see that out there because I think that would be presumptuous to put that out there. We can come together every Lord's Day at 11 a.m. And we can put up on the sign that, Lord willing, there will be the breaking of bread. And we can, <clears throat> the Lord willing, uh, with the liberties we enjoy in this land, as our brother mentioned this morning, we can set the table and put a loaf there and drink up. And by faith, just as Moses, it says, by faith he kept the Passover, by faith we can come into this room and we can show forth the Lord's death one more time. But we can't say we're going to come here to worship. <clears throat> we hope we would come here to worship. But worship, what is it? Is it giving thanks? I suppose it would be included in that. Is it reading passages of Scripture? Is it singing hymns? I don't really know what to say. But we know what worship is when we experience it. If we pray in the prayer meeting, we have needs, and we pray about those needs. And out of our own feeling of need and of emptiness and of, and of insufficiency, we look to the Lord for help. <coughs> But in worship, it's something of a different kind altogether because we're not there addressing our God, our Father, or the Lord Jesus himself in a sense of need, but out of a sense of fullness. He's made us so rich and so full. And as he's occupied us with himself, we just want to share with the very heart of God. We want to look up to the Father and like little children, we just want to say that we agree. We just want to say that we agree. I enjoyed a comment someone wrote once that all that all of God's thoughts of Christ are fully formed in his word. He knows what he thinks of Christ. He's found all his delight in him. He knows all about him. But what do we say about that experience that he by in grace brings us into? When in our the experience of our own hearts and minds and our own souls we find ourselves entering in and, and in a practical way understanding in our measure, he in fullness, we in our measure, the Father's delight in the Son. And this is worship. It's not a sense of need. And true worship, you know, we might forget all about ourselves. Like in that precious hymn, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. We're thankful for the fact that we've had our sins put from us as far as the east is from the west. We're thankful that, that uh, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. We're thankful for all of those blessings. But you know, the work of Christ has done something powerful and eternal. And I experience it in my conscience. I have peace and I have rest. But it's the person of Christ that I need ongoingly to satisfy my heart. And so there's a difference I would just submit between thankfulness and between worship in that worship has more to do with our own thoughts and feelings and the overflow in our own heart's affections for the person of Christ. Who it is that hath done this. It's a sensitive thing, isn't it? And you know, you say, I don't know. You know, have I experienced, am I a worshiper, really? Isn't it something, I know, brother, I guess this is being taped, I shouldn't be so free with the use of names, but brother that used to come through Palmyra a lot he used to speak about communion being like a 
being like a bubble. You know how the children get those little soap containers with a little thing in it with a round disc on the end and they blow those little bubbles. He said communion, communion is like that. It's like one of those bubbles, easily made, but easily broken. Can you sit down and say, I'm going to worship the Lord? No, you can't. You can't do that. You can read and you can pray and you can fast all week and say, I'm going to worship the Lord. There's something about it that it just doesn't work that way, does it? And sometimes, you know, I've <coughs> sat down and just so weary with uh, all the earthly things and responsibilities and the weariness of this poor, tired world. And just to sit down and... Uh, you can't really just turn it on like that and say, oh, I'm going to sit down and have a lovely time in the Word. But I think whenever we sit down, we can put the Lord before us. As like some have used in the analogy of John 2 with those, we can fill those pots with water and we can trust Him to fill them, turn them into wine. And if you've had this experience, you know what I mean. Sometimes you sit down because you just want to, you just want to bask a little bit in His love and to, and to, just open your Bible and the Gospels and just trace him a little ways as he walked here or there. And you start to read and all of a sudden you, your thought gets, your mind gets to wandering. And you start to think about something you said or did earlier in the day. So, That's funny. <coughs> Should I think about that? And you dismiss it from your mind and you go on and you're still reading and all of a sudden you start to think about something that, just a piece of unfinished business, you know, like a letter that you didn't answer or, or a phone call you were supposed to make or... Or something that, you know, you just should really have done and you didn't. And put that out of your mind. You go on. But I believe what's happening in your soul is that it's the Spirit of God, like the oil in those lanterns, that is really the source of that enjoyment of Christ. And He's the Holy Spirit. And we can't just sever our practical life from any other part of our spiritual life. My own conclusion, I suppose you can draw your own, but my own conclusion when those things happen is that, you know, that's the Spirit of God bringing things to my conscience, that he wants me to judge, that I might be in communion with him. Little things, little carelessnesses. We speak about self-judgment, but I wonder if we don't forget sometimes what we're really talking about, all of us, and so that we might be in danger of passing on to the younger ones. Are things that are empty platitudes instead of things that we really feel and experience on a weekly basis. We need to judge ourselves and not to get ourselves into some morbid uh, introspection or anything like that. But as a brother who's uh, with the Lord now used to say, I've heard to keep short accounts with God, to keep short accounts, to always take his side, even against yourself, and to judge those things as they come up and to acknowledge them, that you can be maintained in communion with him. And so some have said that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that one who indwells each one of us, has two functions primarily. The major primary function is to occupy us with Christ, to be the one who just keeps bubbling up different aspects of his glory. His glory is as the Son of Man or as the eternal Son of God, as the perfect servant like you have him in Mark or, or any, any of these other aspects. That's his primary function. But then he also performs the blessed function, and it is a blessed thing, to convict us when we need, there are things in our lives that come up that we need to judge. That we might be able to judge those things and forsake them, to take God's side about them, and then we can go on with a more normal and happy work. And so, when we speak of worship, I, I think this is perhaps what we should be thinking of. A heart that is uh, occupied to overflowing with the person of Christ, 
uh, as well as uh, the glories of the spiritual world. Now again, if we were to put up a sign, we don't know. You know, someone said that there's no shortcut. How did that go? There's no shortcut from, from Egypt to Shiloh. No shortcut from, a, from a, a, an occupation during the week with worldly things. All of a sudden, to come into this room, as we had before us in the reading this morning, there's nothing magical about buildings. Not even this one. And though we've had, in, in my short time here, have had many happy, refreshing times, so that I associate this place with blessing and happiness. Still, there's nothing magical about the place that when I walk in, merely by walking in, I'm going to sit down and be right in the enjoyment of heavenly and divine things. Well, there's no shortcut. Because if we've been occupied with things that are really not for profit, we've got to judge the fact that we've been occupied with things that have been not for profit before we can get on occupying, being occupied with things that are for profit. And I know when I was first saved and... and uh, we used to just live from meeting to meeting. We lived from Wednesday night to Lord's Day morning, from Lord's Day night to Wednesday afternoon to when the prayer meeting started. And how it all just seemed uh, that everything revolved around the meetings when life was simpler then. And uh, how you just felt that anything that came in that would detract in any way from your enjoyment of Christ, whether at night or in the morning in your own home or in the meetings, wasn't worth it no matter what it was. And how I sometimes uh, feel convicted in my own soul as I look back upon earlier years. <clears throat> if anything, we should be growing in these things, and I sometimes feel that that uh, there's been a, a, a slipping in my own soul. I need to be exercised about this. And so getting back to worship, <clears throat> why can we be occupied with worldly things and expect to come here Lord's Day morning and to be able to just bask and be delighted in the heavenly realm where everything is Christ. We can't, and we know that we can't. And perhaps we go on and we give out favorite hymns. And after hymns are given out, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're, we know what goes with what. And a brother might give out a hymn that has a certain line of thought in it, and I might just say, well, that goes with Hebrews 10, and I'll read a passage in Hebrews 10. And we know what the loaf means and what the cup means. <clears throat> but brethren, we know when we are in the real enjoyment, the fresh enjoyment, of the love of Christ and when we're not. Now I don't mean to in any way make light or make <clears throat> uh, put things in a profane manner. It's good to go on with good things. It's good to have habits. The Lord Jesus had habits. It was his custom to go into the synagogue and sometimes younger folks say, well, you know, <clears throat> they see failure in the older folks and haven't seen it in themselves yet. And they say there's failure there, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go on all of that. I don't mean in the slightest to add anything to any of that. The Lord Jesus had good habits. It was his custom to go to the synagogue. We read in scripture what the character of that synagogue was, as far as hypocrisy, and as far as wickedness, as far as evil. But it was his custom. And it's a good custom to go to the meetings of the assembly, and to be there, and to be with the Lord's people. And it's good. But brethren, we don't want to just feel... That Christianity consists of going to meetings and, and that kind of thing and lose sight of the fact as I've sometimes thought at the end of the meeting as we're sitting there wondering if someone is going to give us a word or if someone is going to give out another hymn or whatever. I, maybe I've mentioned it before but sometimes that passage kind of strikes my conscience. Thou gavest me no kiss. It really convicts me sometimes. We sang hymns, we read passages from scripture 
We gave thanks for the loaf and the cup, and we did show forth the Lord's death. We announced his death. We remembered the Lord and his death. But that's kind of touching to me. Thou gavest me no kiss. Were our affections there for Christ the way he would like to have them be? I remember once in a general meetings in New Brunswick, my brother was there, and after the breaking of bread in the room, large room there in the, on the coast there, some of you have been there, and the brother stood up and he he started to speak, and you know, I must confess, my first thought was, this doesn't sound right at all. You know, it almost sounds almost blasphemous. I, 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 I must confess, I started to think this way. Didn't know the brother very well. But he, he started out by saying, uh, has God had a drink? Have we given him a drink this morning in our worship? And he went on speaking about different things, and it, it took a while for it to dawn on me, John 4, give me to drink. And then I was greatly relieved, you know, and I perhaps was just not used to his manner of speaking. But I was greatly relieved, and I started to take deeper interest in what he was saying. And he turned to a passage in, in uh, I think it's Second Samuel, maybe we could turn back there. Yeah, Second Samuel 23 the recounting or the catalog of David's mighty men in his last words. Verse 14. Verse 13. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim, and David was then in an hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. <clears throat> Pretty specific place he wanted it from. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. That was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? <clears throat> Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. As this brother began to speak, and it began to really speak to my own heart and conscience, give me to drink, and that it is the Father's delight to have the satisfaction of hearts. Think of it. Think of the miracle. Men speak, speak of miracles in, in some phases of Christendom there's much made of miracles what an awesome miracle <coughs> that God but not only he can change outward things but the fact that God can go in and change an attitude change a heart that God can go in and not only has he done a mighty work for us but he's done a work within us to give us a totally different point of view than what we had when we were unsaved unregenerate what a mighty work that is to go in and just change things completely. And so that we're new creatures in Christ. New desires, new delights, and a new capacity to understand things we could never have even understood before, never would have wanted to. Because after all, as someone said, he might have forgiven us our sins and not given us a capacity or a desire to enter into divine things. He could have given us access and we would not have had the desire to even go in. 
But he's given us access and given us that, <clears throat> that new nature, as we speak of it, that delights in and wants to enter into the presence of God. And we're comfortable there. That's another awesome thing. And so it was here. <clears throat> Give me to drink. <clears throat> here David is a type of Christ. He longs for the refreshment that he knows is there in Bethlehem. And God looks for... It, it, there's a passage that says the Lord's portion is his people. The Lord's portion is his people. And you think of all the, the, the wickedness uh, and the stench from the mere existence of, of men and women and boys and girls all over this country, all over this world, who go on in a way that is an abomination to God. God is angry with the wicked every day. And you think of that mall... Uh, stench, if, if I would use that word, it's a pretty strong one, but I think it would be suitable, that constantly wafts up, you might say, towards a holy God, day in and day out, throughout the day, throughout the 24-hour period, year in and year out. And what must it be to him when some soul, having been wrought upon by the mighty Spirit of God, has a thought of worship, has a thought that God can say amen to? He's altogether lovely, as we might say in quoting scripture, and God will say amen. A lovely thing. He looks for that. The Lord's portion in his people. But here the Philistines, you know, were the real impediment to this kind of blessing taking place. And this brother said, you know, the Philistine isn't somebody from without, it's somebody from within. The Philistine was the enemy within the land, typically. He was there, always there, always sort of a nemesis, but he was in the land. He didn't, didn't invade from without, he was there in the land. And the Philistine, he suggested, and it commends itself to me, is not something that comes in from outside the assembly. It's just that old carnal mind that exists in you and I. Exists in a still. The carnal mind is enmity with God. And the Philistine, he wanted to be in the land. He didn't want to be anywhere else. But he had no thought and no care for the God of the land. Jehovah, the true God of that land. And so he was there, and he always had to be dealt with. And it's an interesting subject to trace, the Philistine, and how he kept... You know, even from early days, he, uh, he would fill up the wells of water. They had to be digged again. The Philistine was, uh, <clears throat> the name literally means wanderer. And the Philistine got into the land, he, he, you can trace back in the earliest chapters of Genesis, and see that he's uh, a descendant of the Egyptian. The Philistine is the worldly element, and, uh, but he gets into the land, but he doesn't go across the Red Sea and across the Jordan again. doesn't go in through the right way. He takes the shortcut and goes right up through the coast. <clears throat> so you don't need to look around. We don't need to look around and say, I wonder who the Philistine is in, in, in this place. No, it's you and I. It's that in us. It's that carnal element. It's that in us which just wants to go on with things in a dull manner. No, I don't want to leave the Lord's table. don't want to leave the meeting. No, we don't. But, you know, even that kind of a, of a desire to just be there, even in a cold state, or the kind of desire to just go on with a monotonous line of things, wherein we weary one another, if not God. Why, that is something that we, each of us, need to resist, to get before the Lord on our, on our faces and cry to the Lord that that which we take up in the assembly and together, whether we're in this room or out of it, together, and in our homes and families, that it would be fresh and real. Because each of us does have uh, that divine nature that is just totally delighted in all the divine things, the purposes of Christ. And so we need to overcome this tendency in each one of us. The tendency to just go on with things. To just give out a hymn because we know it. Uh, to just read a passage or just to fill up the time. Better to sit in silence 
Better to just wait on the Lord, no matter what our state, that the Lord would lead us, whether it's in little or much, that would be real and fresh to Him. Oh, kind of a digression here, but we might turn now. I see the time, as always, is fleeting. To Malachi, please. Last book in the Old Testament. You know, we have such an effect upon one another. We who are not that terribly old are affected by those of you who are older in the path. We watch one another. We affect one another. Where I was first saved and gathered, I understood very early on that a certain form of, I don't know how exactly to put this, but you just got the impression early on that the thing to be above all was to be a worshiper. I don't know, no one ever came out so much and said that, though they would minister on passages like we've just read. But you would just hear it sometimes when an older brother would speak about some other older brother or sister or some saint. Oh, that, that brother is really a worshiper, really a worshiper. Well, you know, that made an impression upon me, and I could see from Scripture that it was God's desire, you know, that, that we would be worshipers. And I sometimes wonder if we have this same sense amongst us today that all the other things in our lives are ordered around that. You know, if something comes in and it takes away from my liberty to worship the Lord, we ought to really be exercised about doing something about that thing. And sometimes I get the impression that we have a subtle way and a feeling like, how much of the world can I have and still worship? No. How much of the world can I have and still be in the meeting? It, it almost sounds profane to say that, but one almost gets the impression sometimes that, that someone is well thought of. If they're able to make a, a lot of money or to be successful in that worldly sense and to still be able to make it to the meetings and things like that and to go on in the assembly. I just shudder to speak so plainly, but I felt this. I'm not, not here so much. But I just feel that there is this kind of a thing that, that uh, in my generation that we need to combat. Because uh, that kind of a, a simple approach to having so-called the best of both worlds is obnoxious to God, and we're deceiving ourselves, aren't we? Judaism was an enclosure, and I suppose a Jew could say, how far out can I get and still be inside that enclosure? But Christianity is not an enclosure. The sheep in John 10, when they were called out, they weren't called out from one enclosure and put in another. They're out in wide open spaces. And there's an attractive power in that shepherd, and he doesn't need an enclosure, doesn't want one. It's just him, and he's the attractive power. And so the question, what's wrong with this, what's wrong with that, all those kinds of things. How far can I go and still keep up a semblance of religious life? Those are questions that have no intelligence when we understand what the Lord has done and what his purpose is. But as I say, this is something that has exercised me. And I hope as we go on together, those of us especially, that if the Lord tarries, we'll be left here, naturally speaking, much longer. That we, that we stand up against this tendency uh, to seek to uh, just make ourselves comfortable down here and faithfulness to the Lord is sacrificed. <clears throat> but I'd like to read in Malachi to bring out another aspect of things in regard to priesthood than what we've taken up. Malachi chapter 2. 
Malachi 2 and verse 7, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. We've spoken a little bit about worship. And there's another responsibility, another privilege that goes with priesthood, and that is the responsibility that we sort of intimated about a little bit in 1 Peter 2. That there is not only access, but intelligence. The priest's lips should keep knowledge. And so in contrast to what we had before us last time in regard to ministry, not all, all of us are fitted to be on some platform, to be taking a public role in teaching or preaching or anything like that. Not all of us are fitted that way, and it's not God's purpose that all of us are fitted that way. But you say, does that mean that I, you know, that I don't teach at all? No, it doesn't mean that. You have children, you're a mother, you're a teacher. You're a grandmother, you're still a teacher. You have a family, you're a teacher. Now you're a little fellow in school, and there are unsaved ones around you, you're a teacher in this kind of a sense, because we're priests. And uh, though we don't have a special garment or a special card or some special emblem of this privilege, why we have it and God sees it. And we've been instructed in divine things. Even the youngest babe in Christ has an unction from the Holy One and he knows all things. We know the Father. The Lord Jesus has gone down to death and been raised from the dead. And it was his desires expressed almost immediately that he might declare the Father's name to us. Central to his thought when he was when he raised from the dead, that I would declare unto them thy name. We know the Father's name. And so there is an aspect that all of us are to be intelligent in divine things. Now sometimes when we get into difficult passages, I know some time ago when I first arrived we were reading in the book of Revelation, and it gets a bit difficult, and there needs to be a, a, a high level of interest and an exercise to understand things as we come into meetings like that. But we ought not to degenerate into a thing of saying, well, I'm not an older brother, I'm not a teacher, so I'm, you know, this is kind of really not what I need, brethren. That's not right. That's not right. Again, our, our late brother, Albert Hayhoe, you saw, I've heard him say it several times. And uh, he would say, Scripture speaks clearly about a gift in giving out the truth. But nowhere in Scripture does it ever speak about a gift to take in the truth. I've heard him say that several times. It struck me each time. No such thing as a gift to take in the truth. Am I to say, well, I really don't have, you know, it's really not, I don't have gift. No, it's, no, it's not a question of gift. Gift and ministry and those kind of things are over here. And the kinds of things we're talking about this afternoon are over here. Things in which we all enjoy together. All of us, <clears throat> holy priesthood, each one of us displaying Christ, displaying him uniquely according to who we are, but displaying Christ. The same privileges, the same responsibilities. And here when we speak of a responsibility, keeping knowledge, they should seek the law at his mouth. And this is a responsibility that we have, and we have it collectively. And the apostles uh, develop it in the epistles, where it speaks in several ways of us collectively, united together as the assembly, or the house of God being the pillar and ground of the truth. That is, it's not just that this brother over here or this brother here or that brother there are responsible 
to maintain sound doctrine for the assembly of God in this place. But the assembly of God in this place, and on that ground manifestly so, we're together responsible to hold the truth. That's a collective responsibility, the brothers and the sisters, that we all are accountable for. Now, perhaps you felt frustrated at times when you've been speaking with someone, maybe someone at school or someone you met, another Christian or something, and you got into something and you say, well, I know that's not right, but I just, I just can't explain it. Well, that's all right. That's all right. I've had that experience many, many times myself. And sometimes walking away a little frustrated, you know, and going home back when I was single, I lay down and opened my Bible and the Lord would open the whole thing right out. Boom. Didn't trust me with it really, you see. Didn't trust me with it then, but he wanted me to know. And when I got alone, he let me know. We want to take in the truth. We want to hold the truth. There's a difference in our ability to put it out to others. But we should not let that difference in ability or that lack of ability to put it out to others uh, hold us back in any way from having a sincere and diligent desire to take in, to hold, and to enjoy the truth. Perhaps a little digression, but if we could hold our finger in Malachi and go back to uh, Nehemiah 8. <coughs> Sorry, I think it's Ezra 8. Ezra 8. Going back to the land, going back to Jerusalem, going back to the divine center here, Ezra 8. <coughs> Verse 24, Then I separated twelve of the chief of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed under them the silver and the gold and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I even weighed under their hand six hundred and fifty talents of silver and silver vessels and hundred talents and of gold and hundred talents. Also twenty basins of gold of a thousand drams and two vessels of fine copper, precious as gold. And I said unto them, Ye are holy unto the Lord, the vessels are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering unto the Lord God of your fathers. Watch ye and keep them until ye weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites and chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. Twelve chief priests, a representative number of responsible persons. The precious holy things were weighed out. It was fully known what was committed. The responsibility was not to gain, to increase by trading, to add anything, but to take those holy and precious things and to take them across that wilderness journey where they would be weighed again at the end of that journey. And they would be weighed <coughs> before the chief of the priests. And we know who that is. And so I think it's a, a lovely picture or a lovely figure of our responsibilities, each one of us as individual believers. We've been committed precious, precious treasures, each one of us. And we're responsible as stewards to hold these things. That good deposit, Paul said to Timothy, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. It's a good deposit. It's committed to us. It's the mystery. It's the most majestic and glorious thing that a human mind has ever been uh, able to understand or human lips will ever speak. It's been committed to us, weighed out. God knows what he's committed to us. And we're responsible to carry it with us, intact, until it's weighed out again. 
in his own presence and glory. You are holy, the vessels are holy also. Holy brethren, a holy priesthood. And that's what each one of us together are. And so back in Malachi, we have this responsibility. Not only is there the privilege and hence the responsibility that we would be worshipers, but in order to worship, there's, there has to be the intelligence of things. And we're brought into this too. He's called us his friends and he brings us into his counsels. He commits unto us these secret things, these truths, these awesome mysteries that are unknown to the world but known in the church of God. We're responsible to hold them, to understand them. And there's growth in this, but not gift, and to enjoy them. <clears throat> Back in Leviticus 10, Leviticus 10, verse 8. The Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go in to the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that ye may teach, and so on. The intelligence of divine things in a way that God calls holiness. To make a difference between that which is holy and that which is not. And what we might call discernment. Something each one of us needs. You say, well maybe there are those who are spoken of as having a special gift, discerner of spirits. Yes, and faith is spoken of as a gift too. Because there are those who have it in a special way, in a unique way that you and I don't just as there are those who are teachers in a way that you and I are not. But still there is an aspect where teaching is common to all of God's holy priests. And faith is, certainly. And discernment is. Now as priests we need discernment. And in order to maintain, <clears throat> to be maintained as we go across that wilderness with those holy treasures and to maintain that collective holy fellowship into which we are called, we need discernment. We need discernment. Because there is holy and there is unholy, and there is clean and there is unclean, and we need discernment. This is another privilege, another responsibility that we all have as being priests. <clears throat> when there are difficulties in the assembly, there are some kinds of things which those who would be in the place of exercising oversight would handle. But oftentimes, you know, there are things which come into the assembly and how, how is it handled? You know, you just can't write down or it's almost difficult to describe the mechanics as to how an assembly arrives collectively at a decision. It's just a, a, one of those things that just can't be written down or fully understood. A lot of brothers get together and they talk and then they talk over here and, you know, how does it happen? I've never been anywhere yet where there was a really distinct pattern and I'm not saying there should be. But somehow or other, what God looks for when there is questions of holiness, questions of maintaining uh, the assembly as a clean place, there needs to be and there should be and there has to be to be able to be maintained in this clean, this holy state. There has to be the exercise of the consciences of all those gathered to the Lord's name in that place. Now true, we get help. We get help from those whom the Lord has raised up who have wisdom, who have knowledge, 
who have perhaps a special way of discernment that the rest of us don't have. As someone once said, it takes a good engineer to design a road, but every every carter, this was written a long time ago, every carter in the country knows a good road from a bad one. And so where I <clears throat> used to live, there was some older sisters who, of course, never came to the brothers' meetings, and most of the responsible brothers were quite young, naturally speaking. Well, we would have brothers' meetings, as I felt, which and I'm sure you would agree would be right and proper. But, you know, without really saying so much, we used to kind of make it a habit to make a few visits, have a cup of coffee, a dear older widow sister especially, whose judgment we valued. We wouldn't go over there and, and spread it out, you know. I, I know Brother Charles is smiling here. He probably knows who I mean. I wouldn't go over there and say, we have this problem, what do you think? But we'd go over and have a cup of coffee and we'd talk a little while and things would come up as they have a way of doing and we would just, it would just sort of happen that we would get her thought, her input into this question. You know, if we're sensitive about these kinds of things, we can learn what the thoughts are and what the consciences of the saints are exercised to and what they are. This has to happen in the assembly. The brothers don't really make decisions. And you know, even if they did, or a few, or two or three did, you notice there in 1 Corinthians 5, I see our time is up. Well, perhaps I should turn really to 2 Corinthians Chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7. Where the apostle is writing in regard to the wicked person in 1 Corinthians 5, that he enjoined them that they should be exercised about putting such a one out as a wicked person, which they did, which manifested the fact that Yes, he was put out as a wicked person, but you know, he really was a brother. He really was a brother because there was a work that took place in him. Namely, he repented. And so here in chapter 7, see if I can pick out quickly. Uh, well, <clears throat> verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, or never to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear or approved yourselves to be pure in this matter. And so on. When evil is manifested in the assembly, it needs to be discerned. And we need to be exercised, each one of us, that we have God's thought about what we see. If it's evil, we ought to be exercised that we agree that it's evil. If there's a difference in judgment between brethren, we need to be exercised about that. Because if you and I differ about something of this kind of a nature... Either both of us are wrong, or at least one of us is, and we need to be exercised and humbled about that. And I should be just as humbled if it's you that's wrong as me, and vice versa. We're members one of another. So we need to have discernment. We need to discern things and see them the way God does. 
When evil is manifested in the assembly, it's not enough if just a few brothers, <clears throat> though that it's proper that they take the lead. There's such a thing as a porter, you know, in the house of God, a doorkeeper, a porter. And there was a time in Israel when, and I can't think of the passage, it's in Chronicles, there was a certain number of singers and a certain number of porters. And I think the number was identical. Perhaps we can look it up afterwards. Identical number of porters and singers. So what does that bear on our subject today? We're speaking about worship. We're speaking about the ability to come here collectively and to light ourselves in the precious holy things of God. Singers, <clears throat> lovely, but in order for that environment to be there and for us to enjoy such an environment like that, there has to be holiness. There has to be discernment about when things come in that are not suitable to that environment. There has to, first of all, be the discernment of it and the exercise before the Lord to deal with it in a way that God can approve of. And so it's not just enough. <clears throat> Again, the porters... The singers, same number. And God would say to us, if you want to have this singing, you want to have this enjoyment of holy and divine things, you have to be in a practical way, holy brethren. There has to be the maintenance of holiness in a practical way in our personal lives, our family, and the assembly. It's right and proper that some take the lead in these things as far as dealing with them gently, firmly, in a way that is commendable to God. But all of the brethren, the brothers, the sisters, all of us, each one of us in our conscience, need to take a stand in regard to these situations. Need to have discernment. Because what God looks for is not just the putting out of the wicked person or of a wicked attitude or of a wrong doctrine or something like that. But he looks for, as he says here, yea, what clearing of yourselves. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear or pure in this matter. And so I say not just enough for two or three brothers to handle a thing, quote, right, unquote. Now, all of us in our conscience need to understand the divine issues, need to act in a way that evidences holy and divine discernment, so that not only is the wickedness put out, but God looks for the maintenance of his own glory, 